You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things had passed, have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, hello. If you haven't met me before, my name's Coy. I'm the Associate Pastor here. It's great to see you on this lovely sunny afternoon. Uh, well, I want to start off with a question, actually. What is your favourite holiday destination? You know, maybe it's New Zealand, maybe New York, maybe New Guinea. You know, for me, it's uh, Japan. And I remember planning to go to Japan for the first time ever. You know, I, I thought about the, the culture, the food, the people. It was, it was really exciting. And on my first trip there, I noticed that on the plane ride that you kind of get this taste of what's to come. Like the steward and stewardesses are dressed in Japanese attire. You know, the movie choices on the plane, you get things like The Last Samurai, you know, Fast and Furious, Tokyo Drift, you go Godzilla. Instead of mushy roast beef and, and peas, you get teriyaki chicken with curry rice. That's a little bit mushy still, you know. But on this flight, you kind of get this sort of experience. This You get to experience this little bit of culture, the food and the people on the way to that destination. And it's an exciting feeling, you know, that anticipation, that eagerness to reach your final destination. I was thinking about this, and I think the Christian life is a bit like this too. See, what I'm talking about is what the Bible says when, when Jesus, the, the Savior of the world, will return again. And upon his return, he'll mark a, a new era, you know, a time of eternity where the world as we know it uh, no, is no longer the same. Just like what we've just read in our passage in uh, Revelation 21, how it describes it. It's a time where we see the promises uh, of God as seen all throughout the Bible finally come to life, where those who are God's people will be uh, in his presence forever, you know, living in the new heavens and the new earth where everything is restored and there no longer remains any imperfections or brokenness. His promises fulfilled. And it's our great joy that we look forward to as followers of Jesus. You know, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven. But while it's this culmination of all things that awaits us, the reality is, in the meantime, we find ourselves in sort of an awkward timeline. We're caught in this period where we have been promised things from God, yet we also wait for these things in full. You know, we have God's righteousness, yet we continue to wrestle with guilt and shame. We have God's approval, yet we struggle with, we still struggle with insecurity and self-condemnation. We have God's steadfast and secure love, 
and yet can find ourselves being tossed around by the winds and the waves of the present world. We're caught in this period of the, the now and not yet, or some say the already not yet. Even though we have been given rich blessings on becoming you know, followers of Jesus, we find the, the now, the now to be challenging, arduous, and can even sometimes feel unfruitful. So the not yet feels further and perhaps distant in our lives. It's almost like a, a long engagement. Like we already know how we feel about Jesus, who we love. We're committed to him long term. We want to spend forever with him. See, as we close off our Vine Trellis Crow series today, we'll be thinking about how we can live our lives as Christians in light of the present and the future. You know, looking at how God's promises help stir us to live faithfully in the now with our hearts and eyes set on the not yet. So how do we live in this moment, in the now and not yet? But as we begin looking at this, we need to first understand that there is a tension of the now and not yet. And see, a while, a while back on my 21st birthday, I remember my mum, uh, as a gift to me, paid for half of the car that I really wanted. I know, very spoiled, right? It's only child syndrome, I have that. Uh, but it was only a 1998 Honda Civic. Okay, with a full body kit, you know, 17 inch chrome rims, huge subwoofer sound system, all that stuff. Just that I really miss that time. But the thing about the car is that it was a manual car and I'd never driven manual in my life. So when the car was in my driveway for the first few days, all I could do was sit in the seat and listen to some nice tunes. You know, you turn it on, turn the car on and just rev the car in neutral just so I can hear it. You know, do what normal people would do, you know, hug the steering wheel, whisper, I love you. You know, all the stuff that you guys would have done. It was a weird feeling because I knew this car was mine, but I couldn't enjoy it in full. And this is what it feels like for us as Christians, doesn't it? Because if we looked at scripture, we'd see there's this great tension where, you know, where believers with faith in Christ have spiritual blessings, which are already ours. And yet at the same time, the, the full enjoyment of these blessings are not yet ours. For example, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, it says that we have already been redeemed in Christ by his grace. But then in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, it says that we're not yet redeemed as we're sealed for the future day of redemption. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, it says believers are already sanctified in Christ. Yet in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says we are not yet fully sanctified. Ephesians 2, 6, believers are already raised with Christ. In Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, we're also not yet raised. See, there's this great tension, isn't there? That what we have is already ours, and yet we haven't received it in full. And this is essentially the life of a Christian. You know, as Hebrews 11, verse 1 says, we live by the assurance of things hoped for, you know, the conviction of things not seen in the presence, present. But it's a tension that is better understood from the story of the entire Bible. Because in Scripture, you know, most theologians would break up biblical history into two distinct ages, the, the age of promise and the age of fulfillment. You know, the age of promise is where we read about how God had promised to his people to make things right, that he would establish a kingdom and rule through his Messiah. It's essentially what the Old Testament uh, was building towards, how after God created all things, and people who had sinned and disobeyed God and broke a once perfect relationship between creator and creation. 
But God in his loving grace would, would promise his chosen people that he would one day redeem it all, that he would one day make the world just like how it was before sin, even better actually, and that he would actually de- he would deliver his people from the clutches of sin and death all this way, all the way by sending a saviour who would do this and be the king of all kings. You know, as Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. And so in the Old Testament, we'll find plenty of prophets who would talk about when that would happen, that it would mark what they often described as the latter days, the last days, which is what would be deemed by many theologians as the age of fulfillment, where all that God had promised in that age before would be fulfilled, a redemption of the world and its people, his people. And what's clear and amazing is that when we read through Scripture, what we'll find in the New Testament is the insistence from the apostles that the latter days have already broken into history and it all had to do with the person of Jesus Christ. See, as Jesus responds to the claims, whether he is the one whom Isaiah and all the prophets wrote to, uh, wrote, uh, wrote it of in Luke chapter 4, as all the eyes in the synagogue were looking at him, Jesus says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So imagine you're a Jew waiting for the promises of God for so long and then this guy comes into your church one day and says that they've been fulfilled, that he is the fulfillment of them. Yeah, it's huge. That's a huge thing to hear. That Jesus is the Messiah whom God had promised to fulfill all that he had said. That Jesus would be the one who would usher in the kingdom of God, ruling over his people, bringing redemption to the world by his death and resurrection. But the tension is that the age of fulfillment is still incomplete. The latter days in which uh, the, the Old Testaments were expecting and prophesying about has not yet fully arrived. We can be sure of that because we look around and still see a world that continues to be broken and uh, sin remains, you know, that powers and principalities remain active. But while it may seem that way, what Jesus has done has break through history, break through history and inaugurate the latter days. See, writer and theologian Benjamin Glad says, all that the Old Testament foresaw would occur in the end times has begun to be fulfilled in the first coming of Christ and continues until the second coming of Christ. In Jesus' death and resurrection, he has ushered in the now and not yet. And this is important for us to remember because for ages, God's people, as seen in the Old Testament, had assumed that when the Messiah they were waiting for had arrived, that he would usher in immediately what the Bible describes as the age to come which is essentially the last days, the the turning point where we go from this to eternity. The Israelites had long thought that when the Messiah arrived, significantly the general resurrection of the dead would occur, which is the the end time event where everybody is raised, just or unjust, and we stand before God, moving those who are, are gods and those who aren't into the age to come forever. You know, as Acts chapter 24 verse 15 describes to us, for Israel, for God's people, this was their hope, this general resurrection. See, the Apostle Paul, as a Jewish man, would have long believed this himself. 
But after encountering Jesus on the road to Damascus and having his life completely changed by the good news of Jesus, you could see that in his writings that his understanding was now one that had completely changed, that the coming Messiah that God's people were waiting for had already come, and that he was, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, but in fact Christ has been raised from the, from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, the first fruits entails the beginning of a harvest. In this case, a resurrection harvest, that Christ's resurrection has begun something. Jesus' resurrection was the great hope of God's people all along. His resurrection is the huge dividing line in, in the middle between the age, this age and the age to come, marked by the arrival of Jesus, the Saviour, the Messiah. See, as Professor of Westminster Theological Seminary, David Brion says, whereas once the general resurrection of the dead was the decisive turning point of time, Paul now considers Jesus' resurrection to be the great turning point, moving us from this age, moving us from this age into an overlapping of the ages where we presently experience the age to come. See, the midpoint isn't what God's people in the Old Testament imagined, where the uh, Messiah arrives and immediately ushers in this new time of eternity. But rather, in Jesus' arrival, the Saviour and Messiah, the midpoint of redemptive history is expanded. It's bookended by his first and second coming, by Jesus' first and second coming. As Jesus says in Luke 17, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. As Christians, our understanding of eschatology, which is just a a fancy way of saying the study of the last things, the study of the last days, is that God's promise to one day restore all things in full, where sin is no more, where heaven and earth is made new, where those in Christ will, will be in God's presence forever and those who aren't will be apart from him forever. This will all happen when Jesus returns for the second and final time. As Titus chapter 2 says, we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. But it's in Jesus' first coming, as seen in the Gospels, his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension, it inaugurated these last days. It's like what theologian Oscar Coleman says, He says, it is already the time of the end, and yet it is not the end. Christ's first coming marks the beginning of the last days, but his second coming will mark the end of the last days. So we as Christians are living in this overlap of the ages, you know, where we have blessings and benefits that are ours already and are also not yet. It's a tension that is clear in Scripture, a tension that we live in and wrestle with every day, but it's also one that can bring a lot of challenges. Because when we wrestle with something that has tension, it can be easy for us to get it wrong, often leaning too far one way or too far the other. You know, as pastor and author D.A. Carson says, Christians can go sadly astray by getting this balance wrong. This leads to what is sometimes called an over-realized eschatology. That is, you think that you have more of the blessings from the future now than you actually do. Or you can suffer from having an under 
realized eschatology. That is, you really don't appreciate what you have in your possession. See, our danger is that we can have a poor understanding of the last things, either over-emphasizing it or under-emphasizing it. For example, there are many churches who believe that that Christ's kingdom is here and in full operation and and that things such as prayer and praise will make his his kingdom kind of break through into our world. Like you're watching Stranger Things and then you pray and then suddenly there's a crack in the universe and that's God's kingdom breaking through. You're made to believe that what has promised what has been promised to you in the future, you can get now. And so you'll get ch- churches who may, may justify the prosperity gospel or, or name it and claim it teachings with the belief that the riches of God's heavens is already here. God's kingdom is already here. Perfect lives, perfect marriages, perfect contentment, perfect wealth, perfect bodies, perfect satisfaction. It's all yours now. Name it and claim it. Actually, even victory over the grave. Because a few years ago, a large church in America, Bethel Church, had a, had a tragedy where a two-year-old had passed away from their church. And over the weekend of the passing, hundreds from the church gathered together to, to sing aloud and, and, and pray to God, sing loud songs, not that her soul would find rest or, or that her family would find comfort in, that, in the Lord, but they sang and they prayed that God would raise this child from the dead. They would sing loudly, enthusiastically all weekend, come alive, come alive, dry bones, awake, rise, inhale the light all weekend, praying and truly believing that this two-year-old would be raised back to life. Even starting up a social media hashtag with her name in it and the words wake up after it. As you can imagine, it caused irrevocable damage as the girl did not come back to life. And the family had to deal and is likely still dealing with that trauma right now in unimaginable ways. So here was a church whose overall theology is one that leaned heavily on God's kingdom already being here and over-realized eschatology. They believe that because the kingdom is here, you can just name it and claim it because God has, because Christ has secured it. And that, that is what they'll practice and that is what they'll preach. And in a way, yes, Christ has secured many blessings for us. But we have to remember that we live in the now and not yet. And so leaning too much in the now will mean you imagine, it will mean you imagine you have some things that are actually reserved for the not yet. But just as it's, just as, as it's dangerous to lean too far on the now, so it is also the same if we lean too heavily towards the not yet, you know, where we put undue emphasis on the not yetness of God's kingdom, having an under-realized eschatology, as Carson puts it, that God's kingdom and his blessings uh, aren't really here in the now. And so we have more of a pessimistic outlook on God working in the world. You know, I remember my early days of, um, of forming my Christian faith I had a mild foot injury and somebody at Bible college asked, uh, really like joyfully, just asked, hey, could I pray for your, your foot or pray for you that, that God may heal it? And I declined. It was a moment I look back and I, I, I wish I hadn't done that. You know, I, but I do remember why I felt that way, why I declined. It's because in my early stages of faith, I had quite a cynical outlook on Christianity. I had faith in Christ, but my emphasis was more on what will happen at the end, awaiting that perfection 
awaiting that time where all the rubbish and brokenness of the world will, you know, no longer be around. And so as a result, I subconsciously did not appreciate what I actually already had in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that had I accepted that prayer that I would have been healed, you know, that God guarantees it if we request it. Not at all, because I love the quote that, you know, God can and does heal, but he does not promise it. But why I use the example of me declining prayer was because in those days, my thinking about that world then and there around me, I often had more of a defeatist view of the world, which affected my faith. So anything that was, that was you know, seemed remotely spiritual or of that nature, I would immediately disregard. So healings would be deemed as coincidences or momentary. Conversions would be deemed as impossible or untrue. Miracles deemed as set up or just selfish. Forgetting what God, through Jesus, had already done in my life. That he had already healed my brokenness and and by forgiveness and cleansing of sins. That he had converted me from death to life, declaring me righteous. That he had worked a miracle in me by transforming me from who I once was. Leading me to doubt God's power in my life, in turn doubting his power in the world. That I would even decline somebody, something as small as simply praying for me. A pessimistic, underrealized eschatology that had more expectation of defeat rather than joyous, hopeful confidence. As Pastor and author R.C. Sproul says, the citizens of the kingdom are to work, not in the expectation of defeat, but in the confidence of victory. Satan's defeat occurred 2,000 years ago. His final doom is certain, yet our optimism should be tempered by remembering that the eradication of evil is reserved for the last day. We live in the now and not yet. And while we wait for the not yet, we can live in joy and confidence of what Christ has already done, giving us hope that he really has inaugurated his kingdom. And we can be sure of this because the beauty of the now and not yet is that there is an assurance. Because the important thing to remember about living in this overlap of the now and not yet is that one does not outweigh the other. See, obviously, the great future joy that awaits, you know, God restoring all things and being with him in eternity will be a million times better than we can even imagine what we're, what we're living in right now in our lives. Absolutely. But the significance of the not yet being the, you know, the culmination of all things doesn't lessen the significance of the already. Jesus' Jesus's salvation work isn't less valuable to us compared to the future, future glory that awaits us in eternity. But it's actually our great joy and delight in what he's already done because it's the moment in history that changed everything. His death and resurrection were the beginning of that future glory becoming a reality. It put things in motion. See, unlike the, the Jews in the Old Testament and those who are perhaps of Jewish religion today, we aren't still waiting for the Messiah to usher in this age of fulfillment. We can rest assured that Scripture has told us it has already arrived and it's already in motion because of what Jesus has done on the cross and what God has done from the tomb. 
And so we can have confidence in this wonderful news. See, the significant moment in history that people have long been waiting for has already happened. As author Stephen Unthank says, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the climactic crescendo moment in this grand symphony. It was the event which marked and ushered in the end of the end. The salvation and restoring of people to God has been done. We have an assurance as people in the now and not yet because of what scripture has promised us. 1 Peter 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, I said earlier that Jesus' resurrection was the pivotal moment in our history. Because while the Jews in the Old Testament would so often look forward to the resurrection of the dead, for us as Christians, we look back to Jesus' resurrection before we look forward to our own. We do that because Jesus' resurrection is closely united and connected with our own resurrection. What I mean by that is that our future physical resurrection is determined by our present spiritual resurrection with Christ. With Jesus being the, the resurrection and the life, It's faith in Jesus that secures our physical resurrection in the not yet. But it's faith in him that also means a spiritual resurrection in the already, in the now. These two things can't be separated. One doesn't outweigh the other. But there is a great assurance in the now not yet of what has already been done. It means we have already been resurrected in Christ. Faith in Christ means you have passed from death to life. And so you can confidently say that while you have already been resurrected in Christ spiritually, we await the completion of God's promise to be resurrected physically in the future. As David Brion says beautifully, we will enter eternal life then because we have eternal life now. Isn't that a joy to hear? Doesn't that give you great confidence? To those who have true faith in Christ, we have already been raised to new life. Spiritually, we are made anew. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. As Ephesians 2 says, God has made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that we have already physically gone up and are seated right now next to him. But what it means is we have spiritually rose up with him because we are in him. See, while God's promises are not yet complete and we wait for the not yet, we have an assurance in what has already been achieved in Jesus. And yet, I think for most of us, it can still be quite challenging to rest in that assurance, right? Because when it comes to something as important as our sanctification, which is, you know, which means, you know, we're being molded and being made more like Jesus as we await his return. That's what sanctification is. There are many times it can be hard to feel confident in our having new life. There are times that we sin over and over again. 
times where we feel like uh, our sin has us in the deepest, darkest valleys, days, weeks, months, where it feels like we take two steps forward, but then we take three or four steps back. Our journey in our sanctification, it feels like it's constantly in flux, an ongoing battle. It feels turbulent, where it feels like sometimes we win and sometimes we lose. See, sanctification can sound challenging in the now and not yet, can't it? It can get a bit confusing when we read scripture, read in scripture the many biblical truths that almost sound contradictory to the biblical duties. And that's the nature of the now and not yet. It's essentially a theological paradox, you know, both things that seem opposed to each other but are actually in fact true. For example, we've been told in Romans 6 that we've been set free from sin and that sin will have no dominion over us. And yet we're told in that exact same chapter that we ought not let sin reign in us. Or in Colossians 3, it says of believers, you have put off the old self with its practices and put on a new self. Yet in the same chapter, it says, put to death what is earthly in you and put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. How can we be set free from sin, yet told not to let sin reign in us? Why do we need to put off something that you know we've already put off or put on something that we've already put on? And so we have this gnawing feeling of powerlessness and doubt rather than assurance and confidence, where we feel like we're always going back and forth between our old self and our new self. Constantly feel like what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 7.19. He says, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. It's like we imagine that you know, when we are obeying God and living faithfully, we're, we're living out the, the, the new life that we're new creations in, our, like in God. And yet when we fall into sin, we revert back to our old selves, transforming back, between, back and forth between the two, like we're Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or like we're the nutty professor. And the concern in that that creeps in our mind is that it affects our salvation. Like we're constantly moving from a state of saved to unsaved, saved to unsaved, whenever we sin or whenever we do things that are good. See, perhaps you've felt this before, gripped by this fear and doubt in our sanctification. Well, I want to remind you and encourage you today that we can't fall in and out of salvation. We don't sort of oscillate between our old selves and our new selves whenever we sin or we obey. But we can be assured that those who have put their full trust in Jesus, not only are you promised to be raised to life in him, but you are promised his justification, which is another way of saying that you are declared righteous to God completely, that God declares you a sinner, not guilty, and that you are treated as holy And all this is made possible not by anything that we have done, but completely by the grace of Jesus. Romans 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And Romans 4 says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It means that as believers, We are raised in him and we are justified in him. We have a righteous verdict in front of God 
because Christ stands there on our behalf. His justification is our justification. And it's a righteous verdict that cannot be overturned. It's the same verdict rendered to Christ, one that is his and ours forever. Through our union with Jesus, what is his is ours. 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And it's this verdict that is actually a future event, one on the final day when Christ returns again and and all the dead are raised. And as Scripture says, God judges the just and the unjust from the throne, but those who are in Jesus can have confidence. That as Romans 8 says, uh, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so as believers, we can have confidence in our salvation, that we have been raised with the risen Christ and we have been justified by such a saviour. As David Brion says, the person and work of Christ applied in the present, secures our future salvation. See, this is the wonderful truth of God's word to us, that somebody like the Apostle Paul, who still struggled with sin, even after he'd become a a follower of Jesus, he still struggled with sin in his sanctified life, as described in Romans 7. Yet he could preach this with confidence and assurance. He could preach, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not a moving from saved to unsaved anytime we misstep in our faith walk. But there's a firm assurance as we are secured in Christ and all that he has done for us. And so when it comes to the now and not yet, we remember that the righteousness of Christ is ours by faith. But at the same time, as Galatians 5 says, you know, we eagerly wait that hidden verdict to be made known and manifested on the last day. And so we live in that confidence. We need not live in fear or or hesitation, but we live freely in that assurance. But I'm sure everyone's asking, how does one live out that confidence? How can our lives reflect what Jesus has done for us and is continuing to do? You know, what does the Christian life look like in the now and not yet? So the reality of sanctification is that we already we are already new creations in Christ, and yet there is still indwelling sin that remains in us in this age. And so what I think helps us to live faithfully in the now and not yet is to remember two simple things. It's to trust and to obey. Trust and obey. Trust with your whole heart in the already of Jesus. Trust the true statement, true statements of God's word that because of Christ, you are holy. And with that trust, we can freely obey, growing towards the not yet. That because of Christ, we strive to be also be holy. And I encourage you to have the right balance of both because when we lean too heavily on either side, it can mislead us in how we view sanctification. If we solely trust in the biblical statements of our status already. You know, it may lead us to disregard obedience because we're already saved 
and already holy. You know, it leads us to believe that there are no moral laws of God that, that, that God expects us to obey. So we push something like sanctification and obedience aside because we solely trust in who we already are. But then we don't realize that we're never changing, never growing. We're never submitting to God. But on the other hand, if we lead too, lean too much on biblical duties, merely obeying and pushing aside the need to trust in who we are already in Christ, it will lead us to legalism, which is obeying God's law in order to be saved. You know, neglecting what Jesus has already accomplished for us. Forgetting that in trusting in Jesus, he has already changed us. He has already moved us. He has already saved us. What we need to see is that the grace of the gospel opposes both. As Pastor R.C. Sproul says beautifully, God's message to Christians is not you are already holy so remain as you are or you are not yet holy, work on it until you get there. But you are holy, be what you already are in Christ. You are holy, be what you already are in Christ. We trust and we obey. Recall what is already true in the now and then live that out as you await for the not yet. So those days where you feel perhaps spiritually dry, feel prone to give in to temptation, sense sin in your heart is being aroused by your flesh and that you want to satisfy it. Trust in what Jesus has already done for you. Remind yourself of what is true in Christ, that he has already called you from darkness to light, that he has paid for your sins that were nailed to him on the cross and he was raised to life as you are raised to new life in him. As 1 John 3 verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And so remembering that, we obey. Obey by praying to the Lord in that instance over your sin-stricken soul that he may help you and give you strength. Obey by going to his word given to us, which tells you the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that spiritually raised me from the dead in him, dwells in me powerfully. See, as we live in the now and not yet, in our sanctification, we will not claim perfect victory. But know that we also won't claim utter defeat. We need to trust and obey in what is true to us in Jesus. Have confidence that God is with us as we fight until the last day is in sight, when everything in the not yet becomes ours. And that's what I love about all this, is that there is a not yet, meaning it's not yet complete. The best is yet to come. And this is the great joy of the now and not yet. See, while Jesus has inaugurated the last days, we have an unimaginable joy that awaits us. Think about it. You and I are 38 minutes closer to Jesus' triumphant return from when I started this sermon. Jesus, 38 minutes and 10 seconds now. Jesus coming back again is what it's all been leading to. Where in Genesis 1, the earth was made anew and perfect and humanity lived in the most intimate presence with God. No death, no pain, no heartache, no sin. 
in the last days when he returns, as we read, read in our passage, God's pe- people will experience that and more, a new heavens, a new earth that is ours, God's presence among us as he dwells with us. No more death, no more pain, no more heartache, no more brokenness, no more sin. For the former things have passed away. To those who may not yet be a Christian, I want to share with you the wonderful conclusion of the Bible. That for those who follow Christ, there is great peace and there is immense joy forever that awaits us because of what Jesus has already done. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So in everything we do, do in light of the now and not yet, both in the good and the bad. You know, in the good, we can be thankful for the wonderful blessings and and things that we have now, you know, the joy of God's gifts, the joy of his presence, the joys of his, his work in our lives. But realize that it's just a foretaste of something far greater to come. Or in the bad, when we're going through seasons of trial, seasons of pain, seasons of suffering, we can remember that there will come a day in the future where we have cried our last tear, thanking God that we will not be crying forever. See, when it comes to my own faith walk, sometimes when I'm struggling in with my own ongoing sin, perhaps a thorn in the flesh, I take a moment to rejoice in the fact that this will be changed in heaven. Or sometimes when I'm in situations that feel helpless, like the enemy has got a foothold on me, I'm reminded that God has given me his mouth and his ears now through his word and through prayer. Yet there will come a day where I get to see him and be with him in full, in his presence, in eternity. See, as I close, let me ask, do you live in a way that anticipates heaven? Is eternity, which to those in God is already ours, shaping how you do everything? As Isaiah 2 says, as he prophesies the last days, Isaiah 2 says this, Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Walk in the light. Live with trust and obedience in the now and not yet. As a Puritan once prayed, My heaven-born faith gives promise of eternal sight. My new birth, a pledge of never-ending life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. That you are the God who rules, reigns, and redeems. And we see that in full in what Christ has done in defeating sin and being raised to life, that we may be raised to new life. And Lord, as we await the time when all your promises are fulfilled, may we trust and obey you as your chosen people. Help us to trust in the assurance you have given us that in Jesus we are yours, that by his work completely we are deemed righteous by you. And Lord, help us to live out who we already are, a holy people. Help us to love you and live for you with our whole hearts all the way until we see your glorious son return. We pray this in his name. Amen.
thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.